everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at The Secret of Monkey Island, a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed and published by Lucasfilm Games in 1990 for quite a few computer platforms, including Microsoft DOS, Macintosh, and the Amiga, with a number of ports and eventually remakes following in later years. We are going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but as is usual, first we're going to do just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 51. I'm excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT, I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. Just this past weekend, we did yet another weekend gaming challenge. Our first season of the weekend gaming challenge does last through October 1st, and there will be prizes involved. So let's just go through some of the action that happened this past weekend. The top of the leaderboard stayed the same. ISO answered the mail on every single weekend challenge. He got six points, raising his total to 21 points. Rich Senewald then jumped into second place. He got two points this weekend, but also completed the monthly challenge in Pilot Wings, which gave him an extra 10 points. He is now 16 points in second place. Bookie Gnu got five points, bringing his total to 11 points. He is in third place. He has not yet completed the Pilot Wings Challenge, though, which is worth 10 points. And he said strategically he's waiting to turn that in until the very end of the month. So it might be a little bit of excitement there. Or he might be having trouble with the challenge itself. I don't know. He might be doing a little bit of trash talking, might be trying to get in everybody's head. Who knows what's going to happen? Anyway, he is in third place right now. Blue Fates made a rapid run up the leaderboard this past weekend, getting five extra points, bringing his total total to six. He's now in fourth place. Left-handed guitarist managed to beat Star Trek Borg, earning him three points for this past weekend, bringing his total to four points. He's in fifth place. And I am the Dizzle did not participate this past weekend. He is currently in sixth place with two points. The only way to get engaged here, the only way to make it onto the leaderboard is if you actually join the Discord and play in the challenges. Like I said, we have a ton of fun out there. The link is in the show notes. So if, if this does sound fun and exciting, I do encourage everybody to join in. And even if you don't want to do the challenge, just join the Discord. It's a lot of fun out there. I also want to mention that we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash classic gaming today. Our fourth Patreon exclusive episode will go live this upcoming Wednesday. It's focused on the history of virtual reality in gaming and a little bit beyond gaming as well. So that's going to be a lot of fun. If anybody's interested in getting more Classic Gaming Today content, that's the place to do it. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. And of course, I do want to shout out our Pantheon members. These are the individual patrons who are contributing at the Pantheon tier. They are ISO, Rich Centerwald, and David Morton. Thank you guys for your contributions, and thank you all for your contributions and for just listening to the show. I hope you all enjoy it as much as I enjoyed creating it. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context in the entirety and spectrum of video and computer gaming. 
And then we move into a pseudo review kind of section. And I say pseudo review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star counts or anything like that. But we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. It has not aged at all, and I highly recommend that you play it today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend that you play them, especially if you enjoyed the game in the past or you love the genre in which the game lives. You are guaranteed to have a good time. These are not quite Pantheon-level games, but they are still highly recommended, and I still encourage everybody to check these ones out. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broader population. May have aged a little bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. You could still have a good time. But for the most part, I cannot recommend these kinds of games to the general population. And then beyond our mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is The Secret of Monkey Island. The Secret of Monkey Island is a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed and published by Lucasfilm Games back in 1990 for a bunch of different computer platforms with a number of remakes and ports to follow. Before we can talk about The Secret of Monkey Island, we need to go back and talk about the game's creators, all of whom would become absolute legends in the adventure game field. And who better to start with than the one and only Ron Gilbert? Now, I'm going to venture a guess and say many adventure game fans have probably heard of Ron Gilbert in some capacity, as he's not only an incredibly influential figure in classic computer and adventure gaming, but he's also still an active adventure game developer, with Thimbleweed Park and just earlier last year returned to Monkey Island proving that modern audiences still enjoy his brand of adventure gaming goodness. He was also, by the way, heavily featured in our episode on Maniac Mansion, since he was, of course, one of the creators of that game. So, if you want to learn some extra Ron Gilbert history, make sure you check that episode out. Anyway, Ron Gilbert began his programming career, so to speak, as a student in 1983, 
developing a software package called Graphics Basic, which was an extension of the popular basic programming language focused exclusively on the creation and manipulation of visual graphics for computer programs. And by the way, basic, B-A-S-I-C, in this context is not an adjective or descriptor. It's the actual name of the programming language, which stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. That is a bit of a mouthful, so it's not hard to see why the language creators decided to standardize on using the acronym BASIC instead of having to say all of those words every single time they talked about the language. So, adding graphics to BASIC. You might not think that that sounds like a big deal, since today, we kind of take graphics on our computer screen for granted. They're just always there. But back in 1983, most computer-based output was purely text and the traditional basic programming environment was no different. You just didn't have all that many graphical titles, regardless of if you're talking about a game or a productivity-based computer piece of software. Back in 1983, you just didn't have it. But what Graphics Basic did was add new commands to the basic programming language, which would allow game developers, or really anybody using basic, to create various graphical elements for their software. Things like sprites, lines, and shapes, and then they could perform various operations on those graphical elements. It was definitely primitive, especially in comparison to how graphics and computers would evolve, but every technology has to start from somewhere, and Gilbert's Graphics Basic was one of the earlier methods for displaying graphics on a computer screen. Gilbert's early success would eventually result in a job with Lucasfilm Games, which was the predecessor to adventure game behemoth LucasArts. Upon joining that company, Gilbert would be assigned to the company's Atari 800 division, supporting the conversion of existing Commodore 64 games to the Atari system, which was important, but not necessarily all that exciting work. Luckily, it wouldn't take long before Ron Gilbert would get the chance of a lifetime. He would be given the opportunity to team up with fellow teammate Gary Winnick to work on a brand new project that would serve as the foundation of an entire stable of games to follow, while also influencing the entire computer game industry. That game was Maniac Mansion. Like I mentioned earlier, we have covered Maniac Mansion in depth in a prior podcast episode, so I'm not going to go into a ton of details here. What I do want to call out, though, is the fact that Maniac Mansion was built using a new tool set that Gilbert co-developed while working on the game, which was known as the Scum Engine, or Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. The Scum Engine is incredibly significant for a number of reasons, but primarily because it became the framework upon which nearly every future Lucasfilm and LucasArts adventure game would be built. Anytime you've played a LucasArts title with a bunch of verb commands on the screen like get, talk to, or use, you've probably played a Scum game. Even later games with more graphical icon-based interfaces were built on an evolved, more visual version of the Scum engine, just like The Dig. We talked about The Dig several months ago. Even though that didn't have a verb command in sight, that was still a Scum engine game. It was truly pervasive across the majority of LucasArts' adventure game catalog. Basically, if you played a LucasArts adventure, other than perhaps Grim Fandango, which used a different engine, you were probably playing a Scum game. 
Anyway, Maniac Mansion would be a well-respected, critically acclaimed adventure title that would prove Gilbert was a talented game designer, with other game productions across the company beginning to use the technology and design ideas that Gilbert developed for Maniac Mansion, and that eventually resulted in the release of the second scum game known as Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders back in 1988. Now, Gilbert wasn't necessarily working directly on that title, but his influence and the technology that he had built was all over it. Shortly after the release of Zack McCracken, Gilbert would have an idea for a brand new adventure game. Inspired by Disney attractions like the incredibly famous Pirates of the Caribbean animatronic ride, as well as classic swashbuckling films like those starring Errol Flynn, Gilbert thought it would be fun to create a title where the player explored a world inhabited by pirates. He started to jot down some story ideas and presented them to the rest of the Lucasfilm staff, and everyone seemed pretty excited about the concept of building this brand new game in a pirate-inhabited world. Unfortunately, though, another production effort was just getting underway, which would serve to distract pretty much everyone at Lucasfilm Games. That game was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, we've talked about games based on licensed film properties before, which, historically speaking, are usually pretty much just cash grabs with questionable overall quality. There are certainly exceptions to that generality, but all anyone has to do is think about the number of 8-bit licensed titles that probably should never have been games to begin with to realize that licensed games are, at best, a bit of a mixed bag. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, though, was just a bit different, because it had both Steven Spielberg's and George Lucas's attention, and they wanted a game to be created that would truly capture the feel of their forthcoming blockbuster film, while at the same time delivering the level of quality that one would expect when you hear the names Lucas and Spielberg. So, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the adventure game, became pretty much the priority across most of Lucasfilm games. So Ron Gilbert's pirate idea had to be put aside for the time being while he helped to make that game, Indiana Jones, a success, which ultimately he did, as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade received stellar reviews, became the highest selling title for Lucasfilm games, at least for the time, and would be named to a variety of best games of all time lists shortly after its release. Now, it's fairly obvious to see that Ron Gilbert was becoming a bit of a rock star at Lucasfilm, and with his continued success, he was given the freedom to choose what his next project was going to be. Given that he already had a pretty strong concept for a game about pirates, he figured now would be the time to revisit that idea. He sat down to begin fleshing out the idea just a bit more, but it quickly became apparent that for a game of the size and scope that he was planning, it would be incredibly difficult to design it by himself. He knew he needed some help. So, Gilbert decided to turn to a couple of additional game designers who he had recently hired under his team, and this is where two more adventure game design geniuses come into the story, Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman. Tim Schafer, like many aspiring video game developers, had attended college majoring in computer science, with a goal of getting a job with a larger technology company like Atari. Though interestingly, Schafer's interest extended beyond simply developing video games. While he was at college, Schafer began to become interested in writing, and he had high hopes that he might be able to work a normal 9-to-5 job during the day while using his evenings to write short stories and other works of fiction. He began applying to various companies once he graduated from college, 
only to discover that getting a job in the industry was actually surprisingly difficult. He had been rejected by every job he applied to. One day, though, he came across a job posting for a position with Lucasfilm Games, who was looking for someone who could both develop software and write dialogue for game characters. Considering Schaefer's joint interest in both programming and writing, he felt like this would be a perfect fit. So he applied for the job and actually had the opportunity to have an initial phone interview with David Fox, who was the project lead and designer behind Zack McCracken. At the time, though, he was working alongside Ron Gilbert on the adventure game version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So David Fox is another adventure game design luminary. So Fox sat down with Schaefer and they started to talk. And while the two were talking about various topics of interest, Schaefer mentioned that he was a longtime fan of Lucasfilm's prior games, and he noted that Ball Blaster was a personal favorite of his. There was just one problem, though. Lucasfilm had never created a game called Ball Blaster. They created a game called Ball Blazer. Only the pirated version of the title was known as Ball Blaster. And David Fox actually told Schaefer about his mistake during the interview. I can only imagine how Schaefer felt being told by a company that he wanted to work for that they basically knew that he pirated one of their titles. In a shocking twist, though, Fox still told Schaefer to submit his resume for additional consideration. And Schaefer took this as an opportunity to do something creative. In addition to his resume, which he did eventually submit, he also submitted a comic strip designed like a text adventure game that basically showed him getting the job. Apparently, that worked, as Schaefer would be hired onto the team, becoming a scumlet, which was effectively a junior programmer responsible for implementing ideas from more seasoned game designers using the Scum engine. It was also around this time that Dave Grossman, another aspiring game designer, would be hired onto the team, and he, alongside Tim Schaefer and other Lucasfilm employees, would attend Scum University, which was effectively an internal training program where Ron Gilbert would teach individuals how to use the Scum engine to set up rooms and various interactive elements of game design. It's pretty apparent, and I mentioned it earlier, but just to reiterate, the Scum engine was a big deal inside Lucasfilm Games. It wouldn't take long before Schaefer and Grossman became assigned to the same team, with their first assignment involving playtesting Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the action game, followed by being assigned to work on the Nintendo Entertainment System version of Maniac Mansion. Now just a quick note about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the action game. Back around this time, LucasArts, especially with Indiana Jones, and actually, I think maybe only with Indiana Jones games, they would release two different versions of a title. They would release the adventure game version, which was traditional point-and-click adventure, and then they would also release an action version. And I'm not sure about Last Crusade, because I never actually played that title. But I know in Fate of Atlantis, if you play through Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, you will have certain sections of the game that involve fighting. And there was actually a separate version of the game called Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, the action game, where you would actually have most of the 
the game was combat versus general point and click adventure gaming. So around this time, they were releasing multiple versions of their titles, one focused on action, one focused on more traditional adventure gameplay. It was the action game for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade that Schaefer and Grossman would both be assigned to. Mild tangent, but I find it interesting how some companies, especially LucasArts, some of the bigger companies, handled some of their early releases. So anyway, forgive my minor tangent. Let's return to the story because Schaefer and Grossman, regardless of working on that action game and then working on Maniac Mansion, they were just impressing a lot of individuals across Lucasfilm with their work. So when Ron Gilbert was looking for some assistance in designing his forthcoming pirate-styled adventure game, those two names, Schaefer and Grossman, were at the top of his list. Schaefer and Grossman ultimately did join Gilbert's team, and with that trio in place, they all set to work on designing the title that would eventually become The Secret of Monkey Island. Before we continue, though, we need to take another slight tangent into a related discussion about adventure game design, and specifically, Ron Gilbert's thoughts on adventure game design. During our Maniac Mansion episode, we discussed the fact that Ron Gilbert was inspired to create an adventure game after witnessing the graphical adventure game King's Quest while on a holiday vacation. Though despite that inspiration, Gilbert recognized that there were some design decisions that he simply thought were bad ideas. Most of those centered on some of the unfair situations and dead-end paths that players could encounter pretty much through no fault of their own. When Gilbert designed Maniac Mansion, he had vowed to minimize those kinds of situations, but he was ultimately not entirely successful. As Maniac Mansion's ambition, with multiple characters and varied paths and endings through the game, was just a bit too big for the design of the game. Gilbert, for what it's worth, recognized that mistakes were made, so when he began to develop The Secret of Monkey Island in earnest, he decided to document some cardinal rules for adventure game design that he believed were necessary to create a quality, worthwhile adventure game experience. He actually wrote an essay entitled, Why Adventure Games Suck and What We Can Do About It. And that essay would lay out the framework by which he wanted to design Monkey Island. And it would actually serve as the foundation for pretty much every other adventure game that he would develop throughout his career, even to this day. Considering that these concepts govern the design behind Monkey Island, I figure it only makes sense to talk about them here before we move on with the rest of our story. So, let's dive right in and talk about Ron Gilbert's, we'll say, commandments of adventure game design. So his first rule is that when you design an adventure game, the end objective needs to be clear. And what he's saying here is that when you start playing a game, you should know pretty much what your goal is from the beginning of the game. Now, that doesn't mean that the goal cannot change. You may start a game and the goal might be relatively small. And as you progress, new goals get added or the world expands and what you thought was your goal for the game actually isn't because it becomes a world-spanning adventure with an entirely larger scope kind of goal. That is okay. But what he's saying is that at any point in the game, You as the player should know what your quote-unquote end objective is. What is the goal that you are marching towards? Why are you playing the game? You need to understand that, and if you don't, then why are you playing the game in the first place? And that's probably why when he says this, it's kind of like, well, if you're playing a game, you should know why you're playing it. Otherwise, you could potentially lose interest. So kind of tied into that is his next rule, which is sub-goals need to be obvious. 
And basically what he means here is that players need to be provided with some degree of information about how to progress through each major section of the game. It doesn't mean that the game needs to spell out all of the detail, but there should be some indication of what you as a player needs to do to move the story forward. If you just get that end objective, that's not necessarily enough in order to know exactly what to do or to help you really progress. Like if you're trying to become a pirate, like what happens in Secret of Monkey Island, if all you're told at the beginning of the game is become a pirate, but you don't have any other sort of sub-objective or sub-goal, that's going to feel kind of too open-ended. You need a little bit of structure there. And in Monkey Island, that comes by eventually going to the Scum Bar, which is the bar on Melee Island, and talking to several pirates there who basically says, in order to become a pirate, you need to complete these three steps. So those three steps are the sub-goals in this instance. The overall goal of becoming a pirate remains that end objective, at least the end objective as at as of this point of the story. But those sub-goals really help guide you as far as what you're doing in that first section of the game. Moving forward, one of his next rules was what he called live and learn. And this is one that I really agree with because it's all about the concept that players should not be forced to die in order to understand how to deal with an obstacle. I'm sure we have all played games where the only way you figure out how to progress is through trial and error. And sometimes those trials involve death. You walk into a screen, you would have no way of knowing that a certain deadly action is going to happen. It's not like the game even telegraphs it. You walk onto a random block, let's say on a screen, and it falls out from under you and you fall through the floor and you die. Well, when you play it the next time, you're going to know not to step on that block again because a bad thing happened. But how would you have known that to be the case without having that death been experienced. If you just walked into the room, did the game have any sort of indicator that said, look, if you do this, a bad thing is going to happen? If not, if there was nothing that telegraphed that or no hint or clue in the game that would have let you know that a bad thing was about to happen, then Gilbert says that is bad design. What he does say is that death in games isn't necessarily bad, even though most LucasArts games would be designed so that death is nearly impossible. Gilbert believed that death can add a degree of tension, and in some dramatic moments, that might be totally warranted. But it should be designed in such a way that players, if they're clever or if they're observant within their environment and within the game, they should be able to, through observation, figure out what to do to avoid that death. If there's nothing you can do to figure that out other than experiencing the death and then replaying the scene, that is bad design, at least as far as Gilbert goes. Gilbert's next rule was focused on what he called backwards puzzles. And what he was talking about here is the kind of situation where you're playing a game and you encounter an object before you actually get to the puzzle that needs the object. So you're walking around and everybody who's played an adventure game pretty much knows, or at least I'm assuming many people play adventure games like me, which is if you can pick up something, you're going to pick up something, whether you think you can use it right away or not. And tons of adventure games have a lot of items just strewn about that you pick up for no reason other than the fact that your pockets are pretty much uh, unlimited space storage and you can just keep picking things up willy-nilly without even having to worry about managing your inventory, at least in most adventure games. So you pick up everything when you play these games, 
whether you know that's going to have a use or not. What Gilbert suggests is that doing that or having the game design like that actually takes away some of that concept of the aha moment because when you're going through the game, you haven't yet encountered a puzzle to use those items. So when you do eventually encounter the puzzle and you use the object, I mean, that's good. It's good that you're able to figure that puzzle out, but it doesn't give you the same sense of aha or the same sense of solving something tricky as if you had already seen the puzzle, so to speak, and then you find the object later and you're able to put two and two together and say, okay, that object obviously goes to that puzzle. So he says that games should be designed so that you don't really encounter the objects you need until you encounter the puzzle that will use it. For what it's worth, Gilbert's adventure Monkey Island doesn't really follow that rule in uh, many instances, but I still thought it was an interesting rule nonetheless. Semi-related to that one is what he calls I Forgot to Pick It Up. And what he's talking about here is in an adventure game, you should never let the player get into a situation where if they neglect to pick something up, they don't have the opportunity to pick it up at some point, thereby causing a dead end situation. So let's say you start a game and you forget to pick up a critical item at the very beginning of the game and you progress through the game. And let's say you get to a point where that opening section is completely shut off from you. But that critical item is still needed later in the game. You have no way to know that you missed the item, number one. And number two, you can keep going through the game until you get to the point that that item is needed. And then when you get to that point, you don't have the item and you've effectively locked your game. You have to restart from a prior save. And in this instance, because that critical object was at the very beginning of the game, that means you have to actually restart the game entirely. So Gilbert argues that basically there should be no dead end kinds of situations. If you need to pick something up, the game should make it so that you can always get back to that object unless, and he does make a point here, that you can let this kind of situation happen as long as the game does some kind of warning for the player. So the example he gives, if I recall correctly, is something to the effect of if you're about to go onto a spaceship and you needed a, a special object, and as you're getting onto that spaceship, somebody in the game says, hey, make sure you have such and such before you come onto this spaceship. And if the player still goes on the spaceship anyway, even after that warning, that's on the player. And the game designers really are not at fault at that, that point. But if they didn't have that warning, then you start getting into some of an issue because there was no way the player would have known that they basically created a situation where they couldn't complete the game because they missed something. The other concept, or one of the other concepts that Gilbert presents, is the thought that puzzles in an adventure game should advance the story. What this basically means is that puzzles should not be included unless they actually contribute to the game's progression. Puzzles, just for the sake of puzzles, are a sign of a bad design. And a lot of times, we've seen this before, at least anybody who's played some adventure games before knows that there are certain parts of adventure games the puzzles are added simply to add padding, simply to make the game a little bit longer, to justify whatever the price tag was for the game. Uh, I would say that mazes in general are not my favorite thing in games, and a lot of games use them, especially adventure games around this time. There were definitely mazes that were included, and I have to say that I just I'm not a huge fan of that kind of gameplay. So from my perspective, that kind of fits in to this 
rule, not necessarily an exact analog of what he's talking about, but generally speaking, if you're doing a puzzle, the puzzle should be logically embedded within the story or at least involved in the story so that it pushes it forward. Moving on to the next one he had, and and there are a few more of these guys. Uh, He really went into detail here, and I find it fascinating to look into the overall design kind of thought process here. So that's why I'm spending a little bit more time on it than what I typically would with this kind of thing. But in any event, his next rule is that real-time gameplay does not actually equate to good dramatic scenes. What he says is that a game should always make it feel like a player escapes in the nick of time or completes something in the nick of time. But that does not mean that you should code something or you should create a game that uses a real-time clock, at least for adventure games. Remember, we're talking about adventure games, not action games or things that you might be able to have a little bit more control over the situation. But what Gilbert argues is that game developers and designers should use what he calls Hollywood time. And the example he uses here is from Indiana Jones, which I think is just a really good example for this kind of thing. So what he says is that in an Indiana Jones movie, a lot of times Indy may be walking through something, running through an area, and he dives through a doorway. And a door is coming down to to crush him or to at least block his passage back into the room that he just came out of, and he may have dropped his hat. Well, in the movies... You always see Indy reach his hand back through the doorway, pull his hat back right before the slab from the door crushes or would have crushed his hand. He saves the day, or at least he saves his hat, and he's able to continue with his adventure. Well, when you design a game and you use something like that in the game, what Gilbert says is that you should not do that in a real-time kind of situation, meaning... If you have that situation, you should not have the door begin to close and potentially be tied to some sort of timer, like say a 30 second timer, because what will happen for some people is some people will progress through the area super quickly. They'll grab their hat and the door wouldn't have even started to close yet. Or there might be other people that are a little bit less adroit at playing games. They may take longer than 30 seconds and they keep dying repeatedly over and over and over again with this one situation. So what Gilbert says is that rather than do that, game designers should consider that they're really going to design the game based on events driven by the player. So rather than have an actual timer, the event will be tied to when the player proceeds through the door and grabs the hat. And the game should be smart enough to know when the player takes that action, play the right animation to make it appear as though the player just made it through the door and just grabbed his hat in the nick of time before the door closes. In real time, you could be standing there for 20, 30 minutes. The game is still going to wait for you to do something. So from that perspective, it's not really realistic, but it does create the right sense of drama. And it also reduces frustration involved with gamers not necessarily knowing what to do or not playing the game the way the designers might intend them to play it. So it creates a little bit more of an equal playing field for everybody. Definitely something that's an interesting concept, and and I have definitely seen this in various games throughout my gaming career, so to speak. His next rule was associated with the concept of incremental reward. And what he's saying here is that as you're playing a game, it should make you feel like you're making constant progress in some way. Otherwise, you might become disinterested. That could be unlocking new rooms in an adventure game, or it might be 
figuring out or finding a new object that you can then use in a puzzle that you hadn't yet had the ability to solve before. But something should happen over a period of time. You should be getting this incremental kind of drip feed of rewards. Otherwise, you start might, might start thinking, why am I playing the game in the first place? He also talks about the concept of arbitrary puzzles, and this kind of ties in a little bit to the concept of puzzles advancing the story. But here what he's talking about is any puzzles in an adventure game should make sense. If a player can't solve a given puzzle, that is totally okay, as long as the puzzle is logical and can be solved based on the clues that the game gives to the player. If at the end of a given puzzle, the player thinks, oh, I should have thought of that, then that's a good puzzle because what that means is that there was a way for that person, for that player to actually solve the puzzle. They may not have been able to, maybe they had to consult a walkthrough, but at least when they take a look at it, they think, oh yeah, all right, now I get it, that makes sense, you silly me for not thinking of that solution. There are other puzzles, and, and there are a lot of puzzles in various adventure games where there is literally almost no way that a player is going to be able to solve that puzzle. A lot of times you have these puzzles and you look at the walkthrough because you can't figure it out and you think to yourself, oh, I would have never thought of that. And those are really poorly designed puzzles. At least that's what Gilbert's opinion is and I happen to agree with him with this one. Those are what colloquially has sometimes been referred to as moon logic puzzles because you basically have no way of solving that puzzle other than really thinking through what the designer was thinking. It wasn't like there was a separate clue or additional clues in the game that would have led you to that solution. Gilbert's next concept is around what he calls rewarding intent. And this is actually something that's a bit more of a text adventure thing. Because remember, back when Gilbert was writing this, which was around 1989, text adventures, or at least text parser-based adventure games, were still kind of a thing. And the way that those games worked is you would have, as a player, you would type in various commands into a text parser, and if the computer recognized your commands, awesome. But the computer may not recognize a given command, or you might be looking at an object, and you might refer to an object as a box, and what the computer is really looking for is mailbox or cardboard box or something like that and you just don't know to be specific enough and that what ends up happening is the computer game cannot interpret your command and it says something to the effect of i don't know what you're trying to do or something like that so what gilbert is saying here is that games should be sophisticated enough to recognize the intent of what the player is trying to do so if they type box and your character is near a box even if inside the game world it's known as a mailbox or a cardboard box or whatever, you should still give the player the benefit of the doubt. Otherwise, there could be the sense of frustration involved with trying to type a bunch of different things and just not knowing what the game is actually expecting. You can, of course, have this with graphical adventure games too, but it's definitely minimized once you get more of that graphical interface and you have more of the commands explicitly defined either on the screen, like many of the early Scum Engine games, or via some sort of icon interface, which would happen a little bit later. The next concept that Gilbert goes into is all around unconnected events. And what he's talking about here is games should not have progression tied into events that are seemingly completely unrelated to each other. So if you find a door and it's locked, just as an example, maybe that lock is controlled by a switch. 
and that would make logical sense. So let's say you switch the switch and the door unlocks, you move into the next part of the game. In your brain, you're probably thinking, okay, that kind of makes sense. Instead though, let's assume that a door will only unlock if you drop a matchbook onto a table. Why in the heck would that be the solution to a puzzle? And by the way, there are games that kind of have those silly kinds of solutions that just don't make sense. There is no logical reason why dropping a matchbook onto a table would unlock a door. But there are games that have those kind of puzzles. What Gilbert says is that if you can't really logically connect one event to another, you probably shouldn't have those events be the things that drive a particular puzzle solution. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel like a truly connected game world. He just says that's not good puzzle design. And finally, his last commandment or rule around adventure game design is that designers should give the player options. And what he's saying here is that games should strive not to be purely linear. Instead, players should have several different paths that they can work through. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to have different paths through the game itself. But what he's saying is that in a given situation, a player should have the opportunity to pursue several different paths that most likely will eventually converge into a single path moving forward. The thought here, though, is that sometimes players can get frustrated. They might hit a puzzle, and maybe they don't know how to solve that particular puzzle. Well, if that's the only puzzle in the path that they're trying to follow, or it is purely linear and you have to get past that puzzle in order to advance the game, that could lead to a lot of frustration for the player. So what Gilbert says is, rather than have a single puzzle like that, have a few different options available in any given scene of a game, so that if a player gets frustrated with puzzle one, they still have puzzle two, three, or four to go tackle, which still gives them that sense of incremental progression, which we were talking about from a prior rule within Gilbert's essay. So giving the player options is a way of continuing that engagement, continuing to engage the player without having them become overly frustrated. Anyway, those were Ron Gilbert's commandments of adventure game design, or at least so to speak. And I've got to say, they really do make a ton of sense. And as I think about the better adventure games that I've played, I would say that most of them follow the majority of those guidelines, which I think is a clear demonstration of Gilbert's genius. Because he wrote these, like we said, all the way back in 1989. He was effectively writing the book on adventure game design. He just didn't realize he was doing it just yet. Anyway, I mention all of that because, like we said, these guidelines would form the foundation for the design of Secret of Monkey Island, with duties split up between Ron Gilbert, Tim Schafer, and Dave Grossman. Gilbert would be responsible for the overall game and puzzle design, as well as the overarching story, while Schaefer and Grossman were primarily tasked with writing various character dialogue to be included in the game. Now, interestingly, Schaefer and Grossman have pretty different styles of humor, which you might think could result in an uneven experience playing the game. But Gilbert recognized the difference in their styles, and he proactively assigned each to write dialogue for different characters depending on how he wanted the game to feel in each individual situation. In that way, Gilbert turned a potential issue into a positive, as Schaefer's and Grossman's unique perspectives added diversity to the overall game world without creating a situation where they felt at odds with one another. Beyond the story, dialogue, and overall design doctrine for the game, there was a concerted effort by the entire team to improve on the adventure games that had preceded The Secret of Monkey Island. Specifically, 
Gilbert and the team felt that prior adventure games like Maniac Mansion were unnecessarily complex, including verb commands that were either superfluous or needlessly cumbersome. For Monkey Island, the team wanted to streamline the feel of the game, and a number of verb commands were either removed or reworked to present players with an interface that made the game much easier to interact with. As an example, in the original Maniac Mansion, one of the commands was what is, which basically allowed the cursor to display the name of whatever object a player might mouse over. The team realized this was unnecessary, so they eliminated that command and instead allowed that to be the cursor's default behavior. Meaning, if you mouse over anything by default, the game will tell you what it is. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but in practice, it dramatically reduces the number of clicks needed to progress through the game, which really did streamline the experience. Similar enhancements were made to other mouse-driven interactions, where rather than have players have to select a command from the verb list for every single action, the game would be programmed to assign a default click behavior that best matched the object a player would click. So, for example, let's say you mouse over a door. In older Scum Engine games, in order to open the door, you'd have to move your cursor to the open command, click that, move the mouse back over to the door, and then click that to actually open the door. In Monkey Island, the game was smart enough to figure out that if a player was mousing over a door, the most likely action that they would take would probably be to open it, so that's what the cursor's behavior defaulted to. Similarly, if a player moused over another character, the default action would be talk. Once again, this doesn't sound like it'd be a huge deal, but it absolutely did reduce the friction that naturally existed with previously designed Lucasfilm titles. These enhancements, by the way, would be so well-received that they would become the standard in all future Lucasfilm and LucasArts games. Moving on to more of the technical design of the game, Monkey Island had the unique distinction of being developed during a time where tons of technological advancements were happening throughout the computer industry, which is why there were numerous versions of Monkey Island released within a short time of each other. So let's take a look at some of them. The original version of the game utilized what were known as Enhanced Graphics Adapter, or EGA graphics, which basically meant that the game could display up to 16 colors on the screen at a time, which, as you might expect doesn't give a whole lot of wiggle room for artists like Steve Purcell, who was the individual responsible for the game's art, as well as the eventual creator of Sam and Max, didn't really give him much to work with. Designing art for a game using only 16 colors is an art form itself, as numerous compromises have to be made to depict the overall vision for the game, albeit without the creative freedom to use the colors you might have in your head. This was alleviated somewhat with the next release of the game, which used VGA, or Video Graphics Array, visuals, supporting up to 256 colors on screen at any point in time. This was a dramatic improvement over the original EGA visuals, though with that visual change would come some tweaks to the game itself, one of which, by the way, I found hysterical. In the very first EGA version of the game, there's one sequence where you encounter a tree stump in a forest, and if you inspect that stump, you'll get a message about some sort of underground, expansive labyrinth just waiting to be explored. Now, this was simply flavor text. There was never any intention for the game to allow you to explore that underground world. But the game's designers felt like being just a little bit cheeky, so they had a number of messages pop up on the screen after you examine the tree trunk, asking for various disks to be inserted that, in reality, didn't exist. In retrospect, 
That was an absolutely brilliant fourth wall breaking kind of situation, and I legitimately laughed out loud when I recognized the joke. For people playing back when the game first came out though, they assumed that their game had a bug, so they flooded LucasArts support line operators with phone calls about their apparently missing disks. Of course, there really were no missing disks, these people were just totally fooled by the game. But the degree of disruption to the technical support line got so extreme that when the VGA version of the game was eventually released, the development team removed the joke from the game entirely. It was unfortunate that the joke had to be removed, but I kind of also understand why it had to happen. Anyway, I would be remiss if I didn't also talk about the game's music, which was composed by longtime Lucasfilm and LucasArts composer Michael Land. Land would compose the game soundtrack using traditional MIDI, or Musical Instrument Digital Interface, files, combined with various synth-based sound cards to create a reggae, island-styled soundtrack that gamers around the world loved. Interestingly, the first Monkey Island predates the LucasArts iMuse system, which, like we've talked about in a couple other episodes of the podcast, was a music system developed by Michael Land to basically tailor a game soundtrack based on the action happening on the screen, with numerous independent themes blending from one to the other as driven by players' actions. Rather than having looping audio files, the iMuse system would compose tracks on the fly, making the act of playing a game feel like the music was made specifically for your playthrough. iMuse, though, did not exist for Monkey Island, but it was Monkey Island that provided the impetus for Land to create the system, because he was dissatisfied that the music in the game couldn't flow naturally from location to location. So he ended up creating the iMuse system in response to Monkey Island to address that issue. And that would become yet another innovation that would make its way into every future LucasArts title that would be released. By the way, the music for Monkey Island was so well-liked that when the time came to release the game on CD-ROM, the biggest change to the game was the inclusion of a higher-quality soundtrack. And that inclusion alone helped sell more units. Putting aside the various versions of the games we were just discussing, The original version of The Secret of Monkey Island would release on numerous computer platforms in 1990 and would be met with universally positive critical feedback, with many praising the game's humor, graphics, music, and general evolution of the adventure game genre, especially in comparison to Lucasfilm's prior efforts. It would similarly impress players, as gamers and publications alike would add Monkey Island to their respective lists of the best games of all time, with some even declaring it the best adventure game ever made. While many U.S. players enjoyed the game, it would become an even bigger hit in Europe, en route to selling several hundred thousand copies over its lifetime, which in the world of adventure games means it was one of the more successful titles in the genre. Beyond its initial release, Monkey Island would be ported to various systems, feature several re-releases, like we just talked about a few minutes ago, and would be remastered into a special edition release almost 20 years after it originally came out. That special edition contained updated graphics, controls, and music, and would similarly be widely praised as a strong, well-designed gaming experience. The Secret of Monkey Island's legacy extends beyond its own re-releases, as it would spawn a total of five sequels, the latest of which just released this past year. Its art style would be honored in 2011 as being one of only five games chosen for an exhibit at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and over the course of its lifetime, it would serve to influence countless other games that would follow it. While the game itself certainly has a legacy, its designers do as well. 
Ron Gilbert would remain in the adventure game field for his entire career, releasing several other games with LucasArts, becoming a founding member of Humongous Entertainment, which was a company most well-known for designing and releasing children adventure games like Pajama Sam, and also Gilbert would work with a number of other adventure game studios over the years, like Telltale Games and Double Fine Productions. Most recently, Gilbert would be the designer behind both Thimbleweed Park and Return to Monkey Island, which was the fifth and final, at least so far, sequel to The Secret of Monkey Island. Dave Grossman, meanwhile, would remain close with Gilbert, as they effectively partnered with each other throughout their respective careers, with Grossman following Gilbert to Humongous Entertainment and Telltale, and eventually working alongside him to create the aforementioned Return to Monkey Island. Tim Schafer would also remain an incredibly influential force in the games industry, both within LucasArts and after, as he founded the game studio Double Fine Productions, which has been responsible for a large number of critically acclaimed, well-liked games over the years. All three men remain active in the industry to this day. The Secret of Monkey Island was the pivot point that represented Lucasfilm Games' transition from a well-respected adventure game company into LucasArts, an adventure game behemoth that would go on to release countless all-time classic adventure titles. That pivot would not have been possible without the combined efforts of Ron Gilbert, Tim Schafer, and Dave Grossman, three legends of adventure game design and development. While the LucasArts we knew doesn't necessarily exist today, the fact that Gilbert, Schafer, and Grossman are still active in the industry is a boon for gamers everywhere. And The Secret of Monkey Island as their first joint effort, remains a remarkable achievement in video and computer game history. Its blend of comedy, story, gameplay, music, puzzles, and graphics proved what was possible if you took your top talent and assigned them to the same project. And I would venture a guess that from many gamers' perspective, The Secret of Monkey Island is one of those rare titles that will truly be remembered forever. now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. The Secret of Monkey Island is a third-person point-and-click adventure game, and it is the fifth game overall to use the Scum engine, which is the Lucasfilm, LucasArts engine where you have a bunch of verb commands on the screen and basically is the evolution of a text-based interface, albeit with the text actually appearing on the screen versus using a parser for players to actually type their inputs in. And as the fifth Scum engine game, Monkey Island would have a much more streamlined and in some cases advanced interface than the games that came before it. The verb list has been whittled down to 12 possible commands, which was down from 15 in the original Maniac Mansion, though beyond that streamlining, there are a couple of hugely impactful changes to the overall game design that show very clearly the evolution from Maniac Mansion to Monkey Island. Now, just to note, I'm not saying that Monkey Island was the first scum game to introduce all of these features, 
But given that we just recently talked about Maniac Mansion around a month ago, I figured it might be interesting to look at how the engine and game design paradigms evolved from that title in just a few short years. Like we talked about, Monkey Island would do away with the what is command and would instead make it so that the default cursor behavior would be to display whatever object or hotspot a player is mousing over. In all scum games prior to this, mousing over a usable item or hotspot would do literally nothing unless you had the what is command selected. What's surprising to me, though, is that it took five scum games before this was changed, because once the look at command was implemented, which happened before Monkey Island, but was carried forward eventually into this game, there would be no reason to have a separate command just to tell you what an item was. Regardless, I am glad that it was finally changed, because it really does serve to streamline things. Speaking of the look at command, by the way, Monkey Island would, unlike Maniac Mansion, have a world filled with various items and hotspots that were just waiting to be clicked on and learned about, and the look at command allowed that to happen, with your character Guybrush Threepwood acting as a narrator of sorts throughout your adventure. There were actually a number of characters as well to talk to throughout the game, and you could actually talk to them this time with a traditional dialogue tree interface, which had not even been created yet back when Maniac Mansion was released. Those two changes, the whole concept of being able to actually look around your environment and get some sort of narrator text, as well as the ability to talk to characters and actually choose from dialogue options, served to make Monkey Island immediately more approachable than its predecessors. Whereas Maniac Mansion was a vintage experience, meaning it predated many of the design decisions that would make the adventure game genre popular, Monkey Island is undeniably more of a classic adventure game experience. This is where we start to see many of the adventure game design paradigms that we all consider to be part of traditional adventure games come into play. Now, if all Monkey Island did was iterate on the Scum Engine, it would be remembered as an important, but not necessarily unique, experience. The good news for all of us, though, is that Gilbert, Schaefer, and Grossman infused the game with a lot more than simply technical improvements. Structurally, the game is split up into four parts, which are effectively similar to the acts in a play or old-time movie, with a title card delineating when you move from one part of the game to the next. Over the course of the game, you'll encounter a number of different environments and scenes, two of which have unique overworld maps with various locations to explore. All of those locations are full of items to use, hotspots to look at, and interesting characters to meet and talk with. As you go through the game, you'll encounter a number of traditional adventure game design elements, as well as some that are entirely unique to Monkey Island. Perhaps the most innovative and noteworthy mechanic in Monkey Island is the concept of insult sword fighting, which itself was based on classic swashbuckling films like those starring Errol Flynn. The design team remarked that in these films, oftentimes characters would sling insults at each other more than they'd actually swing their swords, so that became the basis of one of the game's early sub-objectives, where you actually had to participate in various sword fights around the first island in the game, Melee Island, in the hopes of learning various insults and their retorts. In almost all instances, those insult-response combinations were pretty funny, and undeniably clever, and I enjoyed how insult sword fighting added some action to the game while still staying within the traditional adventure game interface. 
There have been plenty of adventure games that have attempted to integrate real-time action into their games, which oftentimes are not all that great because adventure game engines aren't really designed for action sequences. Insult sword fighting was a way of simulating action without actually requiring anything other than normal adventure game mechanics, which I thought was great. Now, let's say you fail at one of those sword fighting sequences. In many adventure games, that would mean that you'd lose the game and have to reload a recent save, assuming you had one. Monkey Island, though, was designed in such a way as to make it nearly impossible for you to die while playing the game, unless you did some pretty obvious and intentional things to essentially make yourself die. There was one particularly memorable moment later in the game where you find yourself walking along a cliffside. If you get too close to the edge of the cliff, the ground beneath you will fall away and you'll end up plummeting off the side of the cliff, while a Sierra-style pop-up appears on the screen telling you that you really messed up now and also teasing you that you might have to restart the whole game if you didn't have a recent save. Now, as someone who has played a lot of Sierra Adventure titles, I have to say that the pop-up was absolutely perfect, and I could see it fooling anyone playing the game for the first time, because Sierra did, in fact, do this exact thing throughout many of their titles, punishing players for seemingly innocuous actions, like simply walking near the edge of a seemingly stable cliff. Of course, this being Monkey Island and not Caribbean King's Quest meant that the whole thing was just a joke, and your character would pop up on the screen several seconds later, completely unscathed, after bouncing off a conveniently placed rubber tree. That last interaction alone should tell you pretty clearly that Monkey Island was designed as more of a comedic experience and one that didn't take itself too seriously. There were a number of other similar fourth wall breaking kinds of situations, as well as scenes that would continue to parody common adventure game design paradigms of the time. Perhaps even funnier than the pseudo-death sequence we just talked about was one scene early in the game where you have to find an idol in the local governor's mansion. At one point, you proceed into a back room, and from there you enter into what is effectively an in-engine cutscene, as the game takes over as you watch various verb-noun commands being entered for you. And let me tell you, the commands being entered on the screen are such an amazing parody of the moon logic often included in adventure games around this time, with seemingly unrelated objects being used together to progress the hidden puzzles being solved during the cutscene. This was a simply awesome scene, and I can imagine that anyone who has ever played a couple classic adventure games probably sat there during this brief cutscene with a big smile on their face as Monkey Island basically roasted every other adventure game in the market. In many ways, Monkey Island was a traditional adventure game, albeit one with a uniquely comedic flair and a decidedly more user-friendly kind of design. The unique aspects of the title, though, are what makes it memorable. Before we go on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to mention that I played both the special edition version of the game, which is the one with the updated graphics, music, and voice acted lines, as well as the original version of the title. For those who don't know, the special edition of the title actually lets you swap back and forth between the original and the newer version of the experience, so if you're looking to play only one version of the game, it's probably easiest to simply use the special edition and set it to whatever combination of old and new that you personally want to experience. Of course, before we move on to the rest of the discussion around graphics, sound, music, narrative, and story, and all that good stuff, we do also have to look at the back of the box. Because, as you all know, 
I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I really enjoy learning about how different companies would market their products, especially around this time, because we didn't have the internet to look at for gameplay videos, and oftentimes we didn't even have a ton of magazine articles to refer to. So when we were in a game store, a video game store, a computer game store, most of our buying decision was based on what the box looked like, what the front art looked like, and what was said on the back of the box. So I just enjoy taking a look at these kinds of things. So for The Secret of Monkey Island, the back of the box says, I cursed my luck again as I slid down the monkey's throat. Have my dreams of guzzling grog and plundering galleons been reduced to this? Three small trials and you're a pirate like us, they said. Fair enough. If only I could stomach the foul brew these scurvy sea dogs swilled, the rest would be easy. How could I have known I'd meet a powerful and beautiful woman with a jealous suitor too stupid to realize he'd been dead for years? And how can I crawl through this great stone monkey to find a man who walks three inches above the ground and sets fire to his beard every morning? There's a little note there that says excerpted from the memoirs of Guybrush Threepwood, The Monkey Island Years. And then there are some features like eye-gouging 3D graphics, ear-piercing reggae music, no typing, point-and-click interface, relentless jabs, and cryptic in-jokes only smart people will understand, an average playing time 30 hours. And then, of course, there are some screenshots on the back of the box as well with some captions. So they show Stan's previously used vessels, which says, do business with quaint and humble shopkeepers, and then a few other pictures as well with various captions. So I must say, I loved the back of the Secret of Monkey Island box. I thought it was incredibly clever to have it be almost like an in-game reference, so to speak, or at least in-game world reference as far as the memoirs of Guybrush Threepwood and having that be the back of the box and effectively kind of outline the story of the game, which I just thought was really clever and honestly something that would have really appealed to me if I saw that in the store. I did not actually buy a copy or at least a boxed copy of The Secret of Monkey Island back when I was a kid. I wasn't quite into the computer game scene when this was originally released. So I did eventually get a CD of the game, but it wasn't a boxed copy of the CD. So if I did see the box though, and I was a computer gamer at the time, this would have been one that definitely appealed to me. Anyway, let's move on and start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We are going to start by talking about the graphics. All right, look, the original Monkey Island was released at a point where 256 colors on a screen at one time was considered a premier graphics experience. So you're not going to get super detailed high resolution imagery in its base configuration. That said, it doesn't matter, as I think the game's pixel art style works really well. Despite the limitations of 1990 computers, I thought the game looked good with detailed environments and characters, and I never really had to wonder what something was. It definitely doesn't look modern, but I personally believe that the limitations of the time actually made the artists work better, as they needed to figure out how to convey the scenes and emotions they wanted to depict without the freedom that artists today have. The special edition version of the game removed those limitations, with high-definition visuals that are, at least from a technical perspective, better than the original game. But I honestly feel like the special edition's updated graphics lose a bit of the charm and heart of the original, 
Everything felt just a bit too plasticky from my perspective, and character models looked a bit lifeless in comparison to their more hand-drawn predecessors. The game still looked good, but for me, Monkey Island in its classic VGA form, or EGA if you really want to go old school, is the way to play the game, and it still looks good even today. Moving on to the sound and music, I cannot speak highly enough about the music in this game, especially the opening theme, which from my perspective is one of the best opening themes in a video or computer game. Seriously, I don't know how anyone can listen to that song and not start grinning. It's upbeat, it's fun, and it is a perfect complement to the game ahead of you when you first start it up. The rest of the music throughout the game is stellar as well but it really is the main theme that puts this one over the top. Especially if you have a Roland MT32, which was the sound module for DOS games. If you do, the music sounds perfect. Even if you don't, the music is still amazing. The special edition wisely doesn't change much with the soundtrack, only enhancing the audio with more realistic instrumentation, which does sound good. The other thing the special edition added to the game from an audio perspective was a fully voice-acted experience, with various voice actors from later Monkey Island games reprising their role for this original entry. The voice acting in this version of the game is almost universally good, though I do have to say, I am not the biggest fan of Dominic Armato's Guybrush voice. For some reason, it just doesn't 100% resonate with me. I'm not entirely sure why that is, It's just one of those situations where I feel like the voice doesn't really match the character. The performance itself was fine, it just felt dissonant with what I would have wanted Guybrush's voice to be. And now I do want to note that I recognize this might be heresy that I'm saying this, because Dominic Armato is Guybrush Threepwood. He has been Guybrush's actor from the beginning. It's just one of those things that I don't personally love. Moving on to the narrative and story... You play as Guybrush Threepwood, a wannabe pirate who has landed on Melee Island in search of fame, fortune, and glory. Upon arriving, you set off on a quest to become a pirate, which can only happen if you complete three difficult trials. As you begin to learn more and more about the island and its inhabitants, a deeper story starts to unfold, one involving long-dead pirates, a feisty governor, a crooked sheriff, a mutinous pirate crew, several civilized cannibals, a stranded mariner, and perhaps most importantly, a three-headed monkey. No, seriously, look behind you. Sorry, just kidding around. But I honestly enjoyed the story a great deal. And while it was pretty far-fetched and nonsensical at times, or I guess maybe goofy is a better word to describe it, it really worked. But the only reason that it worked is because of the quality of writing and the comedy on display here. The game was amusingly funny the entire way through, and I especially enjoyed any time the game broke the fourth wall or poked fun at itself or the adventure game genre. I don't know that I would call the game laugh-out-loud funny, but it's definitely chuckle-worthy. I also have to mention, once again, the insult sword-fighting mechanic, which was, from my perspective, simply awesome. I loved figuring out all of the insult combinations, and then when the game unexpectedly mixes things up with an all-new set of insults, I just thought to myself, man, this is some clever writing. Moving on to the playability and controls, if you've played a scum adventure game before, you pretty much know how the game controls. 
You use your mouse exclusively to click around the game world, build commands from a list of verbs and objects, solve puzzles, and participate in dialogues with numerous characters over the course of the game. For the most part, the game controls exactly like many other adventure games that have been released, both classic titles as well as more modern efforts, so no real complaints here. That said, I do want to talk about a couple of items related to the overall playability of the game, and we'll start by talking about the puzzles. The puzzles in The Secret of Monkey Island are all pretty well designed, and I enjoyed the general variety of puzzles at play here. Nearly every puzzle makes you feel clever after solving it, and there weren't really any situations I found myself in where I thought, there's no way I can solve this. Now that's not to say that the game isn't challenging, because there are definitely some tricky puzzles to solve. It's just that they're designed in such a way to be attainable by playing the game and thinking through things, rather than trying every combination of objects like many other games might force you to do. I do have to critique, though, a couple of aspects of the titular island in the game, Monkey Island, which effectively makes up the third act of the adventure. In short, for me, it just drags a bit, and this is primarily because navigation around the overworld map for that section of the game is a bit more cumbersome than Melee Island. There are also areas of map that aren't really visible except by mousing over every pixel of the world, which to me isn't really great design. I know pixel hunts in adventure games were pretty much a staple of the genre, and I recognize that this was still a pretty early adventure game in the grand scheme of things. Still, Melee Island was designed in such a way that it didn't feel cumbersome to navigate, so I feel like Ron Gilbert and the rest of the team could have done a little bit better with this one. Luckily, and in an ingenious and comedic move, the game does provide a shortcut of sorts near the end of the Monkey Island act. No spoilers here, but I will say that back when I first played the game, it was a pleasant surprise that the game recognized how cumbersome a certain late-game section would be, so the designers built in a very welcome shortcut. Even playing through it today, I still thought it was a nice touch. Other than the Monkey Island section of the game, though, I thought everything else was pretty much top-notch. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? Honestly, this game is truly timeless, and it is as fun to play today as it was when it was released. It's not without faults, and this is still a pretty early example of the LucasArts style of adventure games, so definitely go in with an open mind. But if you're craving a light-hearted, fun romp through a puzzle-filled Caribbean, this is the game for you. So overall, what is our verdict on The Secret of Monkey Island? Well, I've got to say that The Secret of Monkey Island once again proved that Ron Gilbert was and is one of the premier adventure game designers in the world, and the fact that the game thrust both Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman into the spotlight as well is reason enough to respect the game. However, respect would do no good if the game couldn't hold up under scrutiny, but luckily, we don't have to worry about that. The Secret of Monkey Island is 100% a great adventure game and is deserving of a spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. That said, I kind of prefer the original over the special edition release. Even though both were made in-house by LucasArts, I really feel that the updated version loses some of the heart and soul of Gilbert and the team's original design. Now, I recognize that the special edition is basically a frame-by-frame recreation of the original, albeit with higher detail, but I just don't care. There's something intangibly better about the original version, at least from my perspective. By all means, play the special edition if you want. It's not like it's a bad experience. 
it just feels a bit more hollow than the original release, at least to me. Regardless of how you play through it, though, The Secret of Monkey Island deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming, and is definitely one of those titles that deserves to be played by pretty much anyone who has an interest in quality third-person point-and-click adventure games. Definitely check this one out. I think you'll be glad that you did. That was our episode on The Secret of Monkey Island. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community within this podcast, and it is also a place where we have a ton of fun and great discussions. So I do encourage you all to check out the Discord. I also encourage you to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. I post a new Patreon-exclusive podcast every other week. Our fourth episode is coming out this upcoming Wednesday. And there's other stuff out there, too. You get cool Discord colors and roles, a special Discord channel. You also get access to any Patreon-exclusive blog posts. That's patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. If you feel so inclined, I would definitely love to see you out there. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the first-person shooter, Unreal. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and it'd be great if you wouldn't mind to leave a review. This is not about bolstering star counts or trying to get a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is getting feedback from the community to make sure that we are delivering the best possible podcast that we can. We get new listeners every single day. I want to make sure that this is as good as it can be. I want to make sure I'm delivering the content that everybody wants to listen to. The only way to do that is to take that feedback and address any issues that we might have. If you don't want to leave a review, you just want to shoot me a note, that is totally fine too. I just want to make sure that I am delivering the best possible podcast that I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Unreal. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>